Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're talking about the Kingdom of God, and we'll be talking about uh, Exodus 12. We've uh, done all the chapters up to Exodus 12. Uh, last week, we did uh, 10 and 11, and 11's pretty short. 10 was a little longer, but 12 is really long. But 12 is a real pivotal point a lot uh, for a lot of reasons for the Israelites uh, back there in the bondage of Egypt. And it would be a pivotal point for you since most all of you are back in the bondage of Egypt again. <laughs> so that's what a lot of people don't want to hear that. They want to think they live in the freest country in the world if they're in the United States or, or I don't know. I, I assume some of the other countries in the world think they're very free too. Uh, because maybe starting business is easier or th- there's just less uh, authoritarian government over them. There's been a lot of change in America over the last uh, three quarters of a century, which uh, I've been living through. And uh, over the last 100 to 200 years, we're certainly not the same country that we were back in the days of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and and a lot of those radicals who uh, had this idea of uh, a free country under God, uh, according to the law of nature and nature's God. And uh, they did, uh, through the efforts of a lot of people in America, start a rather free nation. It was pretty free before... Uh, the usurpations of the king, which are listed off in the Declaration of Independence. Um, but m- almost everything they were complaining about in the Declaration of Independence <laughs> is now pretty much law in the United States, along with the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> most of the ten planks of the Communist Manifesto are law in the United States to one degree or another. We have certain pet freedoms that we think we still have. Uh, I, I listened to an interview uh, by Glenn Beck of a lady who uh, whose husband did some work for uh, Jeff Bezos and uh, and his mega co- country uh, company country almost country company that uh, uh, if. Evidently, they did a real estate deal, and if their company, uh, Amazon, did not prove that a felony was committed in the process of purchasing this real estate, they would owe millions and millions and millions of dollars. Uh, I guess up to the tune of maybe $100 million because of the real estate the way the contract was written, I haven't read the contract, don't know the details. It's a Glenn Beck interview uh, with a lady. Uh, I can't even remember her name, dark hair, but you can go probably try to find it. But what happened was evidently people at Amazon, this is still kind of an ongoing case. Uh, they, they've actually been kind of winning now, but 
what happened was Amazon evidently tapped into its connections with government through people they give lots of donations to and got people in government. They actually even hire ex-government uh, uh, agents such as FBI agents and uh, Department of Justice uh, lawyers. And uh, they accused a man of a felony who was involved in the real estate deal with the intention of... Uh, claiming that that was the felony and therefore they didn't owe the hundreds, hundred million dollars or whatever the amount is. And in order to goad him into confessing to a felony, they tapped into the forfeiture laws, which we've written about and talked about, which have, are normally only used for drug-related kingpins, etc., but evidently, they got a way to use them against this guy, and they confiscated his bank accounts, confiscated uh, family bank accounts. Uh, they were just backing him into a corner, and they said that all that would go away if they he just pleaded guilty to a felony. And uh, he wouldn't do it. Good for him. <laughs> he wouldn't. Uh, plead guilty to a felony. Musk was put into a similar situation where he had to plead guilty to something that he didn't do or he felt he didn't do. It seems like he didn't do it in order to get the, uh, I think it might have been the FCC or somebody off his back so that he wasn't backed into a financial corner. And it's this manipulation of of government through corporation that is the very definition of fascism. You can look up fascism at preparing you we have an article on fascism uh, that's what it is it's corporations using the government to actually where the government is the terrorist attacking the person uh, the guy offered to turn himself in they said no you will be arrested in front of your children in your home that's part of the plan people will offer to turn themselves in under these crazy accusations and they won't let them they won't let them turn themselves in. They want to send a SWAT team to their house and arrest them, humiliate them, and coerce them into pleading guilty by freezing their bank accounts, freezing their assets, getting them fired so they can't get a job. They're doing this to a lot of the January 6th people. They put them on a list and then they just kind of attack them. Your, your Justice Department has done a lot of great work over the years, but it seems to be out of control. Your FBI has done a lot of great work over the years, but it seems to be a portion of these institutions are out of control. Same thing was going on in the American Revolution. Uh, a lot of the troops were here and they helped us when there was actual danger from either the French or the Indians or what have you. Uh, but they became totalitarian. The very institutions you create to control and you give power to to control uh, the situation so that you're safe can turn on you and become the actual danger. Now, fortunately, this guy never pleaded guilty to a felony. He he tried pleading guilty to a misdemeanor, which was questionable at that. Thought that that would pull off the dogs, but it didn't. 
But eventually they're actually winning and exposing what's going on behind the scenes. And this, we see the same thing with uh, numerous other public officials. They get attacked. Uh, families get attacked. And this, they have this power and this unleashed power and this unregulated power because we didn't learn the lessons of Exodus. We didn't learn the lessons that Moses was teaching us about good governments and bad governments. And because of covetous practices, which Peter talks about, Paul talks about, Jesus even talks about, we have gone back and been entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Everybody and almost every citizen in almost every country is back in virtually, in reality, in the bondage of Egypt. Because what was the bondage of Egypt when we studied Genesis? 20% of your labor belonged to the government. You didn't have gold and silver in your pocket that you owned that you could use this money and pay a debt with. You had some other in Egypt. They had uh, these clay scarabs and they also used other things like grain and and even bricks as a commodity money. We see that with the people in Goshen. They had to pay their tally of bricks. And uh, actually, I just added to our page on statutes and ordinances showing the words, the Hebrew words that they, you know, the word that they translate into statute and sometimes into ordinances in the Hebrew, the first time it appears in the Bible, it's actually the word translated into portion. (laughs) So somehow, the same word that was translated portion back in Genesis, later on gets translated as statute. Same exact word. So is it, is it, is it a law? I mean, the word is actually even one place translated law. Or actually a couple of places it's translated law. And I've added some of those places to our page on statutes. And you can go study that and we may review some of that because there's a number of places in Exodus 12 where we see words like statute and ordinance. And what word is it? And uh, we're showing you more and more going back and looking at Hebrew text and And in the show last week, in the afternoon show, I read a letter from somebody in the Midwest who who mentioned that he noticed I was still using the Masoretic text. And uh, the Masoretic text, of course, came about around 700 A.D. And it was put together using older texts, but there were some alterations in the Masoretic text. But the Masoretic text is what the Hebrew Masoretic text is what they use to produce the King James Bible. And it has, I've been led from the beginning of teaching people that I wasn't going to jump around from this translation to that translation and that I would use the King James Bible consistently in my writings and in our articles and in our broadcasts, which are thousands now, uh, for consistency. And for accessibility, because there are concordances which you can look up. Now, for instance, the Strong's Concordance, you'll look up words and you'll see uh, a word like judgment. 
in the Hebrew, in Genesis 18:19, we see to do justice and judgment. And there's a word there uh, for judgment. And if you look it up, it's mishvat, uh, which is mem, shen, uh, gimel, tet. And it's translated judgment like almost 300 times. But it's also translated manner 38 times and right 18 times and cause 12 times and ordinance 11 times and lawful 7 times. So how can one word be translated so many different ways? Because it's also translated discretion, measures, sentence. So what is it? Is it judgment or is it all these other words? The fact is, is when you, if you actually went into the Hebrew text, many of the places where you would see the word mishpat, uh, you won't see the word mishpat. You will see a combination of letters that may be far in excess of that or less, or there will be letters missing and letters added in. And all this is done in the Hebrew language to give clearer meaning to Hebrew words. And their use in the sentence. Because sometimes it has to do maybe with syntax. Although you will have verbs spelled exactly the same as the noun. And then you'll have sometimes again those different letters added in or taken away. To slightly alter what the author is meaning. And when we read Moses' Exodus or the Pentateuch. We see a very systematic way in which he's putting words down you know like he'll he'll have you know 50 words and then you know he'll have a phrase and then 50 words and then the phrase again and then 50 words and the phrase again and so he's being very methodical in the way he's writing the text it's very clear that there's there's a, a method in his writing of the text but now if you went and googled you know, the Pentateuch, uh, you might find Google saying, well, they don't even think Moses wrote it. They think it was written like 600 B.C. Well, there were probably copies made in 600 B.C. And then, of course, there's the Septuagint. And we have earlier Hebrew uh, texts. I mean, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which includes at least one book of the Bible. And we have that text, and it's fairly the same as what we see in the Masoretic text, although the Masoretic text, they write their letters differently. And where all those changes are and those differences are could just consume your entire life with study and examination. But what you would be doing, possibly, most likely, would be climbing around in the tree of knowledge trying to decipher the information that Moses was trying to impart to you. But that's not how you should find out because you'll fall short if you're climbing around in the tree of knowledge. So we're going to look at a lot of different words as we go through Exodus 12. We're going to look at a lot of the words that Moses used, a lot of the letters that he added, a lot of the letters that he took away, why he may have done this, what he was really trying to say. If you have a word that can be translated portion and law and statute and ordinance, well, if you can do all that, you can mislead people 
to think the way you want them to think. I don't want you to think the way I want you to think. I want you to think the way God wants you to think. And before we're done with Exodus 12, we're going to show you all kinds of secrets <laughs> that are, aren't secrets. They're actually in the text uh, that may help you find what Christ was trying to show you because what Christ was trying to show you is really the same thing that Moses was trying to show you. Moses was not misleading people with a type of covenant or a type of sacrifice. He was saying the exact same thing as Jesus Christ would come and say. Jesus and Moses were in agreement. They are two witnesses of the same God. But you might not think so on your existing perception of the Old Testament. But a great deal of the modern Christian perception of the Old Testament, the modern Jews' perception of the Old Testament, is dependent upon a pharisaical approach to the Old Testament. And I don't want to pick on Pharisees. There are actually guys out there today who are calling themselves Pharisees. And there were good Pharisees at the time of Christ, and there were bad Pharisees at the time of Christ. And there were Pharisees of Pharisees like Paul who changed his thinking, which is the definition of repentance. Repentance means change your thinking. And he began to see things differently. And he explained things, according to Peter, that were difficult to understand. The difficulty in understanding them often is the result of preconceived notions about what the text actually says. You know, we have Sam Harris, a confirmed atheist, who reads the Bible and says a goat is a goat is a goat. But anybody who knows Hebrew knows that a goat is not always a goat. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the, one of the words that we see translated in goat is also translated into sheep. And sheeps are not goats. You can just ask my wife. She sees a decided difference between sheep and goats. Because uh, we've had both. <laughs> and they are, they are different. But it, not only can it be different that way, it can be different. The word can actually mean something far more abstract than either a goat or a sheep. And that is the nature of Hebrew. And then if you add a letter or take away a letter, you can change the meaning some more. And if people aren't telling you that, you can be misled. But what what will not mislead you is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not an emotional feeling. The Holy Spirit is the actual Spirit of God, the the DNA of God, the pattern of God. That is what the Holy Spirit is. That's why it's called holy, because it's different than other spirits. By the nature of the word, the phrase Holy Spirit, we're referring to the Holy Spirit of God. But of course, Paul tells us there are God's many, and there are God's many. And what he means by that, you have to understand the word God. And of course, we've got videos, we got articles, we got audios that explain to you this word God. It can be translated from a number of different Hebrew words, but it's actually back to that word uh, judgment. A God is a ruling judge. Theos in the Greek means a ruling judge. If you went into a court, you might call the judge Theos. 
a Greek court or a Roman court, you could address the judge as Theos, the ruling judge of that court. He is the god of that court. You go into courts today in America, and the judge that's sitting up there on the bench, he sometimes seems to think that he's a god of that court too. And if you question that, he will inform you otherwise that he is the god of this court. This is my court. And he is the ruling judge of that court. Now, you can appeal up to other gods. That's why there are many gods. And that's why Paul said that. Is because when he was talking about these many gods, he was talking about the judges. The imperial judges, the local judges. They each had courts and they were gods of those courts. They were ruling judges of those courts. And that's why Jesus says to the apostles, Ye also are gods. Meaning you also are ruling judges. But, of course, you only have that right to be a ruling judge when you judge according to God, according to the Holy Spirit, according to Christ. We will see as we go on through uh, Exodus where Moses strikes the rock. He strikes the rock a couple of times to get water out of him, whatever that means. But he actually strikes the rock. And when he did it, he did it with a certain amount of willfulness. And we know that he did it with a certain amount of willfulness because afterwards he says, look what I and Aaron have done by striking the rock. They took credit for it. And so I don't take credit for anything that I'm going to tell you today. <laughs> you can blame me, but I don't take credit for it. If anything that I tell you about is the result of inspiration of God, it is God's power it is God's inspiration that I'm passing on. But you can't get God's inspiration from me. You can only get God's inspiration from God. Because only God is the source of the Holy Spirit, the tree of life. Now, of course, Sam Harris doesn't believe in God. But Sam Harris doesn't understand that God is, you know, the will of God. This is why I wrote the articles on the law of nature. The law of nature, the will of God, divine will, right reason are convertible phrases. They're all talking about the same thing. Now, somebody will tell you that this is right reason over here and this is right reason over here. But it may not be. That's his opinion that it's right reason. Somebody may tell you that the law of nature is this and the law of nature is that. And the aurora borealis is caused by the sun reflecting off of the polar ice cap. But they may not be right. But the law of nature is what is. Right reason is the reasoning of God. The will of God is that. Whatever that is, that's God. That is the will of God. And so we're going to find out what Moses thinks that is as we read through Exodus when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. As I said, uh, I've been following the uh, recordings that uh, Jordan Peterson made concerning uh, Exodus. Uh, they're going through that with a number of scholars, and uh, they've come to a, a numerous conclusions and numerous things that they talk about. You know, there's James Orr and Dennis Prager and uh, Stephen James Blackwood and Jordan Peterson, 
And there have been a number of other guys uh, that were on their panel, and these are supposedly scholars. So I mention them from time to time, and as I'm going through listening to their opinions concerning Exodus and Moses and Exodus 12, uh, there are a number of things that, uh, to me, are they're not really that shocking, but I'm, I'm stunned at, that they're missing. And it's helping me listen to them so that I know where people are not seeing what Moses is really talking about. And I, I mentioned to you before that Moses would sometimes make a summary of what he was going to do, like in the early days when he's telling Moses what we're going to do. We're going to go to Egypt. We're going to set the people free. And uh, the heart of the heart, uh, the Pharaoh is going to be hardened. And he's he's not going to let him go. And then there's going to be... You know, so he explains it really briefly. And then he goes about it. But one of the things that I wanted to point out, and I'm going to keep reminding people of, is that Moses keeps going back to God. Somehow he goes back to God and asks God, what did I do something wrong? Uh, what should we do next? Uh, this is, you know, this is what I see happening. This is what... You know, that's the things that are bothering Moses. He takes them back to God and God tells him what to do. Now, exactly how he's doing that, he will explain later on. Or at least he will make references to it. I see, you know, like Dennis Prager is often addressed in this group because he is actually a Jew. He has, you know, he's learned Hebrew from uh, school uh, and he he has an interpretation that he can bring to the Bible based on the Jewish perception of Exodus. And he tells them what he's thinking. And of course, I see that it, well, our study of Exodus, it can help Jew, Muslim, Christian, Buddhist alike. By the time we're done, we're going to try to open up what Exodus is really all about, it's about people who went into bondage because they cast their own brother into bondage. They meant it unto evil, but God ended up turning it to good. And that's, that's one of the conversations these scholars had. You know, it's like, you know, why does God allow unjust things to happen? Uh, Dennis refers to the fact that, well, the, he didn't lead the Jews out of Europe before the, the Germans took over in the Holocaust in World War II. Why didn't he lead us out of that? And he has a reason why. And my, my perception is that a great deal of the difficulty that they had, that other people, that the Chinese had, because 60 million Chinese supposedly died as communism took over, all of this stems to the same thing. Because as we went through the 10 plagues, as we go through Exodus 12 and 13 and 14, we're going to see that the ten complaints <laughs> as Israel is moving from a state of bondage for generations after generations where they begin to descend into this this deplorable state of bondage where they're actually aborting children and throwing children into the river and 
And why are they doing that? Why are they, I mean, you want to talk about Holocaust, the abortion Holocaust. That was to one degree or another on a very small basis compared to what we're doing today all over the world was taking place in Goshen. And it was taking place because of generations of bondage. And they had no means to overcome that bondage, no means to overcome the influence of that bondage on their minds and their hearts and their very soul. The word soul is often the same as mind in the Hebrew text. Your mind, your soul are, are their overlapping concepts. Uh, one's more corporeal and incorporeal, but uh, the fact is that they are similar concepts. Flesh and blood, similar concepts. The soul uh, is this, uh, the seed of the soul was by Moses was considered in the blood. And so there's this connection of the physical and the the spiritual, the more abstract, the more non-physical realities that are incorporated into these physical symbols of blood and flesh, etc. And uh, when we look at leaven and unleaven, bread, and, and the bitter herbs that uh, are mentioned in Exodus, that... They actually have, you know, there there is an actual leaven, but there also is what the leaven represents. And if you don't know what the leaven represents, you're not going to get the message of Moses. Because he tells you, he tells you in Deuteronomy, he tells you in in these other books that he wrote. And, and he's he's trying to impart it, but if you... Fiddle with the translations a little bit. You can mislead people that are led by feelings. You know, is love a feeling or a fancy? It It isn't either. Love is a utility. And you, you've heard me say that before. If you've listened for a while, you'll hear me say that again. But a utility, like electricity, it's like power. And ultimately, you want that power flowing through you as a strong current. Because that that love is how you cast out demons. It's how you hold back the plagues. It's how you heal the sick. It, you don't do that with a fancy or a feeling. You do that with the utility and the power of God, which is the love of God. You know... All kinds of creatures love all kinds of things. All kinds of people love all kinds of things and other people. But love and lust are not the same thing. So no, love is neither a feeling nor a fancy. It is a utility. And we'll get into that as we go. But I'm going to start right out reading this chapter 12. And uh, we'll get to some of these things like 11. I'll leave leave my notes open uh, concerning, but we will make reference to some of the things that Jordan Peterson's uh, group brings up because we and we hope that they listen someday and find out what they're missing because they're asking questions. At least Jordan is often asking questions, and some of the answers cause me to cringe a little. <laughs> Because they're missing the mark. But anyway, let's go ahead and start with verse 1. 
And uh, it's entitled this, you know, I put some titles on here. I took them from Esor to put in some of my own titles to help you organize this chapter because this chapter is full of stuff. I've created a half a dozen other pages to help you explain some of the things that come up because this is a pivotal point. Uh, they've had the plagues. They've learned some lessons. They've learned how to work together. Uh, they learned how to take care of one another. They learned how to trust Moses a little bit more. And Moses keeps saying that he's going to God and God is telling him what to do. And some are saying, and we'll be saying this for months to come as they go out into the desert. You know, Moses, you, you talk to God and you come and tell us. Well, that's the doorway to dictatorship. You don't want that. You, that's, you're giving power to a man you should not be giving to that man. And that will corrupt that man, just as we saw with Saul. That's what I call the Saul syndrome. We have articles on that. But it also corrupted all kinds of guys who might have been good leaders, but you gave them too much power. So whose sin is it? Well, the sin, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? You empowering other people to be your prophet. You put them up on a pedestal. You gave them the power to talk to God and come back and tell you. Not a good thing. An actual very bad thing. Moses was trying to get you to communicate with the Holy Spirit. And even though Christ clearly appointed apostles, and those apostles networked together, those 12 apostles networked together with 120 other men in the upper room, and they went out and preached the kingdom, their goal always is to get the people to tap into that same Holy Spirit of inspiration that Christ breathed into them. That's the goal. And they, the, Christ set certain criteria for his ministers to help them stay on that goal. And of course that's been removed by most of the churches. They don't even look at that. They don't even see that. It's right in the text, but they pay no attention to that. And they do this, oh, we're going to look over here. We're going to create this doctrine or that doctrine. We're going to say it's the doctrines of Jesus, but it's not. Well, this is the same problem facing uh, Jordan Peterson and his group as they go through this. So, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers a lamb for an house. So they're going to have one lamb per house. This is what they're going to do. And they're going to do it on this. They're going to count this as the first month. And they're, they're going to do this on the tenth day of this month. That they're going to get this lamb that is going to be one for each house. And the truth is that word lamb there could be a goat. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to say it's a lamb, but they're going to have to eventually eat that all at one time in the night. Now I want to point out that in verse three, this is the first place we see the Hebrew word for congregation. 
in the Bible. This is the first time. You've gone all through Genesis. You didn't get this word. You've gone through 11 verses of Exodus. You didn't get this word. But in verse 3 of chapter 12, we see him speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel. The word congregation is Eda normally, which is in Delet Hay. Uh, which is also translated company. It, it's translated a lot of different ways. But in the text, if you actually look at the, yes, the Masoretic text, I, I will do comparisons occasionally with other earlier texts, but then which one are we going to use? I think that you can figure this out. Well, I think you can figure it out immediately with the Holy Spirit. And so... I'm not trying to teach you Hebrew. I'm just pointing out that there are things you may be missing and you're, the people you have put up on your pedestals or your pulpits may not be telling you. I'm sitting down here on the ground. I'm going to tell you that in the text we see an delet tov. Now what was the other word? Normally it's an delet hey is congregation. But in the text we see elet Ayan Delet Tov. And Tov is the letter of faith. That That's what it stands for. And if you go to Preparing You, you can follow along on the side panel. Uh, uh, at, just look up Bible, look up Exodus. Go to Exodus 12 and you can follow along with this. If you're listening to a recording, it'll be there. I might change some of the things <laughs> before you get to it because as I go through these, I'm constantly updating and upgrading things. But there, there, there's actually a link to the, the meaning of the letter Tov. Because adding these letters changes the meaning of the word sometimes slightly, sometimes greatly. Sometimes it just nudges it in a particular direction. But this is basically telling you that the congregation of Israel is a congregation of faith. Which is why they removed the hay and put the Tov there. At least that's what I'm telling you. I could be all wet. You don't have to believe me. But what does your heart tell you? What does the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit tell you? And we also see this, this same word will appear again in verses 6 and verses 47. It is from this Hebrew word ed, not edda. Edda is, you know, elef delet, hey, but ed is elef delet. Which actually means witness or testimony. Now, Edda or uh, Ian Delatav doesn't mean witness or testimony. Ed means witness or testimony. But the purpose of these congregations is to be a witness and a testimony. What they do is a witness and a testimony. And they're talking about this congregation are going to gather a lamb for each house and what are they going to do with it? <laughs> so, anyway, the, the, I go on to tell you that the, the word is a contracted Hebrew word, ud, composed of the letters in vav delet, meaning to return in the sense of repeat or for the purposes of bearing witness. So, Everybody's going to do this. Everybody's going to be a, giving a witness. Everybody's going to congregate together as one company. And faith is a key element. Actually, if you go back to the whole Hebrew text 
of the beginning of this, you'll see lots of extra tovs and mim tovs added to words. We'll see that in the text. I'm not showing you every place that I see these things, but when I look at the Hebrew, I see these patterns and I say, oh, look at that, look at that, look at that. But if I show you all those things, we'll never get through this. And it's a long chapter. So, verse 4 starts off, which I, I give the heading, Households and Neighbors. Verse 4 starts off, And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls, every according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. So, in essence, these Israelites are going to gather in a house and eat a lamb. If you got three people in your household, that's, what, 20 pounds of meat per guy. <laughs> if you have a 100-pound or 120-pound lamb, it's going to butcher out at 50 to 60 pounds of meat, and you're going to have to eat it all, plus the unleavened bread, plus plus the bitter herbs, and you're going to have to do it all in one night. Well, and whatever you have left over, you have to burn up. Now, this is meat. This is this is a big deal to eat meat. And so they're not going to waste anything. So that they have now a motivation in this ritual and ceremony to invite other people into their house. Now, the guy with the little bitty house that only has, you know, two, three people living in his house. Families were pretty small then because we know that the male children were kind of disappearing, but there were still more families. But uh, there were more females supposedly at that time. At least that's what we're finding in the excavations of Averis and Goshen. But anyways, they don't want to waste any food. They have to burn up whatever's left over, so they're going to invite enough people in that we can eat this 50, 60 pounds of meat and leavened, uh, unleavened bread before morning. And so some people are going to be stuffed, and uh, it, they're going to have to invite a lot of people in, and it's probably going to be invited into the guy with the bigger house. Because you have to all stay in the house all night long. You can't go home after you've filled up. You got to stay in that house. You got to sleep in that house. So this, this is, we'll see this as a part of the, the whole message. So I'm giving you a heads up. So, uh, I do have a footnote there on the word soul again, uh, because this particular word soul, you know, is, it's translated soul 475 times. So basically it means soul. But 117 times it's translated life. 29 times it's translated person. 15 times it's translated mind. Again, looking back at that idea of mind and soul being similar things. We can see this in other places as well. But it's also translated creature, body, himself, yourself, dead, will, desire, man, themselves. This is... This is the same word, except for, and we're not going to go into all these different places, except for the fact that they do add letters and take away letters, and that can account for some of these other translations of the word. And like I said, you can get lost in in trying to follow everyone up, but we're going to stick on trying to understand what Exodus 12 is about. But just giving you a heads up when you see these 
different words. They're not always translated the same way. And sometimes there's a good reason for that. And maybe other times there may not be a good reason. But we can overcome all that with the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to walk around the elephant in the room, which is everybody has returned to the bondage of Egypt, for a reason. And we're going to see if we are contributing to that bondage or if we're on the road to set the captive free. So verse 5, under no blemish, we can read, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. So it's still a lamb. Just to give you a heads up, I'm a shepherd as a profession. That's one of my many, many professions. Once a, a sheep is over a year, it's not counted as a lamb anymore. It would be counted as a mutton. So this is a young lamb. Now that that's a rule today that not necessarily... But what it probably means is it's never been used for breeding purposes. It also has not been castrated uh, because they castrate a lot of lambs that they... You know, if you see a lamb born and it's it's a little maybe awkward looking or you can tell what kind of wool it's going to have and you don't want that wool in your flock anymore, you may castrate that lamb so that if it never breeds. And the best time to do it is when it's young. That was a common practice for thousands of years. And uh, so it's not a castrated lamb. It hasn't been used for breeding purposes. It's still young. It's not an old ram or an old ewe that you don't want to use anymore. Uh, and Because that's normally what a shepherd would be butchering and eating. Something that's that has lost its use and it's going to die. He eats it keeps him strong he can take care of the rest of the herd that's nature that's that's natural a lot of people say, oh we don't want to do that we don't kill it no you want it just to decay and drop dead and all degenerated from old age <laughs> no every animal in the herd lives for the herd the shepherd lives for the herd so that's that's just i'm going back to standard taking care of business so your lamb has to be a good lamb male not old, not with blemishes, not used for breeding. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. There you go. So it could be a goat. And ye shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. Uh, The 14th day of the same month. So remember they were in the 10th, now they're in the 14th. And the whole assembly of the congregation, that word assembly is actually... Another word that is translated congregation, and they didn't want to put congregation of the congregation, so they translated assembly. It's normally translated congregation 86 times and assembly 17 times, company 17 times. But it actually is a a completely different word with different letters. And we'll look at that later. But we're going to take another break, and then we're going to come back and see how far we can get into Exodus and find out what Moses was really talking about. So be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And we're looking at uh, Exodus 12. We're in verses 6 and getting on to 7. I look back at the actual Hebrew during the break and the assembly word there is the actual assembly word, kuala 
what it means, and the key word here is, if you look at the the Hebrew word for whole assembly, they're using the word assembly as someone you assemble. And what they're doing is assembling the congregations of the people. Eventually, we will see the Israelites organizing ten families in a single congregation. And then those ten families will gather together with other congregations and this forms the whole assembly and and they do it by tribe now you have to realize that the tribes are based on the original ancestors of the 12 brothers and uh, they they've been intermarrying right along probably intermarrying with egyptians right along uh as you know and other people there were other foreigners many other foreigners in in uh Egypt after the famine wasn't just Egyptians. Even before that, there were a mingling of a lot of other people in Egypt because it was such a major trade route. You had people coming in by boat and to to purchase things and then taking them out. So it was a real melting pot to begin with. But now they are organizing into these congregations. They are organizing under the charismatic figure Moses. And Moses is going to teach them a new way to govern themselves so that they remain free souls under God. If they stray from any of the formula that Moses is going to lay down, they're going to become a scattered flock. They're going to, they're going to have problems. They're going to face plagues of their own. Uh, God is going to tell them and subsequent chapters that if you keep these and they're going to refer to their statutes and again that's why I've done this whole study on statutes ordinances and portions they're not always laws they're not always statutes as we think of today we have to think like Moses is thinking like Jesus was thinking and not think like somebody some a uh, preacher who stepped out of the mall and is trying to tell you the way they th- think. And there is ways to check to see if you're thinking clearly or correctly. And one of the ways to check is ask yourself, am I back in the bondage of Egypt again? <laughs> does, uh, does somebody else own 20%, 30%, 40% of my labor? Am I, do I have a lawful title to my property? Am I uh, living in somebody else's household thinking it's my own? All these things will tell you I must have strayed from the formula if I'm back in the bondage of Egypt. And, of course, Peter tells you what, how straying from that formula will be. We're going to explore Exodus to see if we can find out what that formula really is. And it has to do with the Passover and taking the leaven out of your house and out of your bread and and circumcision and all sorts of things. But no. What are those things? What does leaven mean? Why, Why? If you get all the yeast out of your house at Passover, have you got all the leaven out of your house? No. Not necessarily. And so that's what we're going to explore and find out what Moses was trying to tell us with all these symbols. Because he tells us. It's in the text. But don't be distracted by what you think you already know. Christians do that all the time. Jews do that all the time. 
Uh, I'm sure Muslims do that all the time. But the Holy Spirit is the same for everybody. God is the same for everybody. You can you can put different names on him, but he isn't any different. Right reason is right reason. There's a lot of people who think they are doing right reason, but they're actually very unreasonable. So, in that uh, that uh, assembly of congregations, they shall kill it in the evening, this lamb. And they shall take the blood and strike it on the two side posts, on the upper door posts of the house, wherein they shall eat. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden. Sodden, I would mean like at all with water. In other words, boiled. You know, you're not making a boiled stew. You're roasting it. And there's there's significance in the reasons why you are doing that. But we can't go into all of it. We're just going to try to get the gist of it so you understand. But they say, but roast it with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remaineth of it until morning, ye shall burn with fire. So anyway, now we've we've looked at all this stuff. So what are the pertinence? Let's hit that. We're going backwards. But uh, in verse 9, we see this pertinence. And the pertinence is the entrails. That's the guts. That's the stomach. Uh, might even include the lungs. You could actually put the lungs in there. People make food out of lungs. And uh, the heart, that's going to be in there. Now, uh, we would... Today, when you butcher, you take all that stuff out and you call it the awful. And uh, you can do things with it, but most people don't. In, in America, most people don't do much with it. A lot of other countries, they do a lot with it. But uh, you're supposed to have that in there. Now, I know where somebody was trying to go back and celebrate the Passover and they were getting into the Hebrew. And they very intelligent guy, very smart guy. And they put on a Passover festival and had people come from all over. I know some of the people that actually went there, at least one of the people. I think I may have known more. But they said that, yeah, they they killed the sheep in the evening and they started roasting it with the pertinence. They just put it on the spit and started roasting it. They didn't even skin it. They didn't take the wool off. They didn't take the guts out. Well, I can tell you, What's going to happen? And it's not going to be a pretty sight. That is not what they mean. What they do traditionally is they take the guts out. They clean the guts out. They cut the guts. They open it up. They remove all the debris. Everything the sheep has eaten. All the stuff that is now turning into feces. That's all washed out. They'll actually turn the intestines inside out. Wash all that out. I mean, that's... How they used to make lynx sausages is they would fill those intestines with meat. Well, they don't do it until they clean it out. And so they clean that out. Then they put, there's a lot of fat on those uh, entrails, what we call entrails. And they put it all back in. They sew it up and they will cook it with that. Now, as that cooks and roasts, it will turn on the spit. That also will add to that 50 or 60 pounds 
of meat because you theoretically need to eat the entrails as well, which would be like the skin on hot dogs, you know. And I'm not saying that you couldn't put, you know, maybe you use some of the bitter herbs there and, and what have you. There's lots of different ways to fix that. But they're going to have to add, eat probably 80 pounds of uh, the carcass weight with the entrails in them. But they clean that all out, and they do not have the skin on it when they do that. They'll probably put the skin on the floor if it's a sheep, and it, you know, it'll be face down and nice wool to sit on because you're going to have all kinds of people sleeping on the floor because you got all these extra people in your house to eat all this up. There's a reason you're doing this. Again, like I said, it's the rich man's house, chances are, where most of the people will be gathering. On that block, in that neighborhood, the guy who's the well, the best off with the biggest house is going to be host to this meal. So everybody's going to come in. And this is, this is, a, this is a sharing feast. This is a sharing festival. Even the Muslims still do this when they have a sacrifice, except for the fact they have a tradition now. I don't know where and how it got to this point, but this is the present tradition in many Muslims. There's lots of different Muslims and way they do things. They sacrifice the animal. They cut it up. They don't roast it whole. They will cut it up. And I've seen them actually putting the meat, like stew meat, into plastic bags. And they say, this has to go to the poor before we can eat any of this. They have to share it with the poor before they eat any of it. But according to Moses, you gotta have the poor in your house. <laughs> they got, you gotta let them in your house. They're gonna eat with you all night. They're gonna be gifts in your house. That's a big thing. And so the, but the blood on the doorpost, to go back up to verse seven, this was a problem with the Jordan Peterson people that were looking at this. They kept going back to the fact that, well, there's two of these doorposts. And this represents the two of the the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. There's always these two pillars and everything. I don't believe that the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke were two different pillars. I think it was the same one that looks different in the daytime than it does at night. But... Uh, and there is symbol in two pillars. We see two pillars in, in a temple and there's a reason for all that. And there's two witnesses and there's two this and two that. And that's a very common thing. But I think that the doorposts, because they also, you have to put the blood on the lintel overhead that are held up by those two doorposts. If your house was made out of bricks or stone, you would have these wood doorposts at the door that would frame that door in and that and you're going to have stones above that or maybe rafters above that so you had to have supporting posts there so this is what holds the household up this is what it represents those door posts are held up so that you could enter your house and leave your house and bring things in and take things out through this doorway and they're held up by these posts and these posts have to be saturated with the blood of the Lamb. That's the symbol. Okay, what do, as a Christian, what do you think of the blood of the Lamb? You think of the blood of Jesus Christ. What is the blood? The blood is the seat of the soul. So it has to be saturated with the soul of Christ. What is the soul? The soul is the mind of Christ. 
That's why I'm showing you all those words. Soul, mind, same words. <laughs> so, if if you got blood on there from a sheep that you're going to eat, and you put it on the doorpost, have you got any closer to the message of Moses than anybody else? No, if you don't have the character of Christ, who talked about love all the time, love thy neighbor, poor neighbor, rich neighbor, you got to eat, sit down and eat with him. You can't do that unless you've forgiven him. If you're still holding a grudge, you'll be, you know, I'm not going to eat with that guy. And so this is the message of, which is the, of Moses and the message of Christ is that you have to love your neighbor as yourself. Moses said it. Christ said it. And and your door way into your household, into the heart of your household, into the heart of yourself, has to be saturated with that charity and love and forgiveness. It has to be painted with it so that it absorbs into that dry wood of your of your lentil and the doorposts or other your your household will crumble your family will crumble and today we see divorces everywhere we see uh uh families can't stay together uh they don't even come together they're having children out of wedlock and families are destroying you know women are trying to raise their children without a a good husband in the household and they go from one man to the next they destroy the child that they have or the children that they have because they don't have the blood of the lamb in their doorposts of their hearts so anyway that's what so we got all the way through verse 10 <laughs> so and, and and we can't have any it's not the rituals and ceremonies these are they're just the symbols of what will become the social bonds of a free society. That's what we just explained. The social bonds of a free society from verse 5 to 10 in a ritual format. So now we're going to look at make haste in verse 11. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, Passover of what? Well, of the plagues and of the plague to come. Of death itself. It's going to be the Passover. If you eat the the meaning of this meal and take it into every flesh and corpuscle of your body. That's what you have to do. If you just eat a lamb and you got blood smeared on your doorpost, then, you know, you haven't done it. You haven't done anything. You're not going to be any closer to God. People are going to say, try to tell you, no, if you if you do this ritual, God will automatically, that's witchcraft. If you mix this recipe and that recipe and I have newt and uh, toad and, and and all these little uh, things that you put in your pot and you mix it up, that's just witchcraft. And it's especially witchcraft if you're still not practicing pure religion. And what does it mean to not practice pure religion? It means to form the cities of blood. 
You have blood on your doorposts. You're sacrificing and sharing that blood on uh, of the sacrifice with your neighbors because you love your neighbor as yourself. That gets you closer to the Passover of the Lord. The rituals get you closer to nothing. It isn't the outward sign. That's unmooring the meaning of Moses from what Moses was saying. I know though I can just hear people say, No, if you just do what he says, you'll be saved. Of course, we do the same thing with Christ. If you just say you have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart as your personal Savior. If you've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart as your personal Savior, you will love the light. You will be born again of the light. You will see not only what Jesus is saying, but what Moses was saying way back then. And you will not be doing iniquity. You will not be back in the bondage of Egypt, but you are. Because you haven't been doing what Christ said. And you can say, well, I'm doing it now. Well, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. But let's go on with verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. Well, of course, he's kind of already done that with his other plagues, which we've explained. All those plagues represent different gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. I am, and when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's Yahweh. Yadavahe. That's the letters Yadavahe in the Hebrew text. That is the existing one. That is the right reason of God. That is the law of nature and nature's God. That is the will of God. That is that unmoved mover. It is not dependent upon your opinion. It exists outside of your opinion. Verse 13. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses... Where ye are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall ye, shall be unto you for a memorial. And, and they have a particular word there that's, this translated memorial most of the time. Sometimes it's translated remembrance. One time it's translated record. But it actually means kind of a reminder. But it's, it's kind of an interesting word. It, it comes from an, another word that doesn't have all the same letters. <laughs> it doesn't have the, the vav and the nun that you see in this particular word. Uh, but it, uh, it's a word that actually also is said to mean remembrance or recall, uh, of the mind. But in this, in this particular location, it has this other extra letters, the vav and the nun. And the nun, you know, I say that's the fish letter, that's the fish swimming in the water. It has to do with motion. So it's not just remembering like, oh yeah, I remember that. It's it's remembering it in your actions. That's very important that this is a memory that actually alters your actions. If you just have the Feast of 
of Passover and you, you smeared blood on there and you all stuffed yourself with lamb and then you burned up whatever it is you didn't want to eat. Maybe you didn't want to eat all the lungs. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if they put the lungs in there or not. I know there are recipes for preparing lungs, but... Uh, I, I haven't eaten the lungs yet. <laughs> just, uh, I, I've done too much butchering. I just haven't found the courage to eat the lungs yet. But I, if I haven't been, if I'm real hungry, maybe I will. But as we, we go through this and, and, and see this memorial, this remembrance, it's important because of the extra added Vav Nun that you put this memorial in place for the whole year this idea of sharing and forgiving and taking care of and feeding your neighbor which is pure religion to feed your neighbor well it's not pure religion religion is taking care of your neighbor that's what religion was that's how you take care of your neighbor that's how you create the social bonds of a society but it's not a free society unless you're taking care of your neighbor through faith hope and charity if you're taking care of your taking care of your neighbor through systems that use force and men who exercise authority and men who uh, assert fear upon the people and, and demand fealty and obedience to them, well, then you're probably back in the bondage of Egypt and you're practicing some sort of public religion, which is false religion, and it is not the religion of God. It's some sort of legal charity. It has to be real charity by faith, hope, and charity, which is what Christ preached, what Moses preached, and what he's going to be teaching. And that is the crooks of it. So you're, if you're not following that way of faith, hope, and charity, but following the way of force, fear, and fealty, you're not following Christ. You're not a Christian. And, and you probably bound yourselves with contracts and now you're back in the bondage of Egypt and you can't get out. But good news is the plagues are coming <laughs> and you will have a chance to have the Passover of the Lord, not just the Passover of people, you know, Masoretic Jews and, and Jewish people who just go through the form and have unmoored the meaning. We're trying to get to the meaning. So this memorial goes on to say, and ye shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. So there we have that word ordinance. I'll probably end up putting a footnote in there so that you can see it. But that's verse 14. And over on the side panel, we have the term ordinance there is chuka, which is chet kuf Hey, that's normally the way that you will find that that word that you see translated ordinance in this verse is translated other ways in other verses. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I've got that right there on the page. It's also translated statute 77 times, ordinance only 22 times, custom twice, appointed once, manner once, rights once. So, yeah, it's translated a lot of different ways. And there's a reason for that. And sometimes it's letters. Well, the actual text doesn't just have chet, kuf, hey, which is the normal word. But the critical letter here is tov. And again, that's the letter faith. So I don't think it's just an accident that Moses slipped in the letter tov here when he's referring to this word that they're translating 
ordinance, this feast by a portion, by a custom, we say ordinance, because they want you to think that, oh, you got to do all these things and everything. But again, what you have to do is live by faith. That's why he put the, the faith letter in there, the Tav letter in there, is that you have to do it by faith. And so that's going to be important. We're going to get on to the unleavened bread here, and we'll get into that a little ways. And But that, we will actually go to another page that I have linked to in order to understand what is leaven. But verse 15, seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your house. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day, there shall be a holy convocation, and in the seventh day there shall be a, a holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall ye shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. And ye shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in the selfsame day... Have I brought your armies, and again, we looked at that word armies, out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. And then he goes on the first month. But what is this leavened and unleavened bread? This is this is critical to understand that it has nothing to do with yeast. You take all the yeast out of your house, you still haven't taken all the leaven out of your house. Because that's not what it means. We'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, what is this unleavened bread? Why is this so important? Uh, I heard some of the excuses that uh, are reasoning of the people with Jordan Peterson. And uh, they were saying, well, there wasn't time. They had to be ready to go. And that's what we saw back there in May case, that uh, we shall eat it with our uh, with your loins girded. And, of course, now the, the word loins there is an interesting word, too. I mean, it's translated loins many times, but it actually could mean just waste. And... Uh, when they say the waist girded, they may be talking about the fact that the, they used to wear a, this is very common at different times. It's difficult to say what they were wearing. But if you were traveling, you would have this long, uh, like a woven cloth on a loom that might be a foot, might be two feet wide. And it's kind of like the swaddling clothes of a baby. And you could wrap it around your waist and you could tuck stuff into it. It worked kind of like pockets. And, you know, you might put your sword in it or your purse in it or whatever. But if it got cold, you could wrap it around your shoulders and and, and around your waist. And you could actually, it was maybe just barely wide enough to use as a blanket to cover you. And uh, that would be girding your loins. I mean, you're ready to go. You're ready to travel. Uh, you got your shoes on, your feet, and, and your staff in your hand. And they're saying that you need to be ready to go. 
And it wasn't just so that they could leave really first thing in the morning and get out of there, but uh, it it had to do with be being prepared to move according to the command of God. And of course, that God's command should come to you through your heart and your mind as he writes upon your heart and your soul. That wasn't the case with most of the Israelites at that time. They had not learned what Moses had learned and what Aaron was learning and what I'm sure some of them were learning this. Uh, is this of how to move according to the Holy Spirit. But they were going to move with thousands of people. They were going to move with Egyptians. They were going to move with all kinds of Israelites that had varying degrees of understanding. And they were literally going to be thrust out and they were going to have to go. So he was giving us this description. He may have given a lot more description to them. This is written after the fact. And it is written in a particular pattern to give you the basics. So basically we understand that this feast is about sharing, is about this blood. What do these things symbolize? All this will be talked about later. But he's giving you this short kind of st- story of how everything went down. So, But they also have to have this unleavened bread. Uh, and he says in the in verse 18, In the first month of the fourteenth day of the month at even, ye shall eat unleavened bread until the one of the and twentieth day of the month at even. The, the, actually, one of the things they said that is that the bread was uh, unleavened because they didn't have time to leaven it. Well, they had time. They They got the sheep... Days before they killed it, they they prepared the sheep. They they could have had lots of leaven bread made. So it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that they had to be ready to go. Uh, it might fit in a backpack a little bit better to have a bunch of unleavened bread because <laughs> uh, it's not all puffed up. And they had other things. Well, that's souring the sweetness of the bread because the yeast is going to eat the the part of the carbohydrates and and lots of these things. But actually, as we get into what leaven is and what where the word comes from, we may get a completely different idea. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. So there's strangers that might be a part of the congregation of Israel. There's people that are born in the land that become congregation of Israel. and But if they're eating leavened bread, they're out. Do you really think this has to do with yeast and flour? No. This is a symbol of something. Now, if you want to worship the ritual, you can do that. It's fine with me. If you want to practice the ritual, that's fine with me too. But if you don't understand the meaning behind all this, then you're probably out of a spiritual kingdom. You will not be in the spiritual kingdom. You will not see the light. You will not even love the light. You will say, no, no, all we have to do is get the yeast out of our house. Actually, Jews, I was told this by people who've been with 
Jews at Passover, I guess, and they said they will take all the yeast that's in their house and they'll put it in a box and they'll take it over to some non-Jewish neighbor's house and they will leave it at that house. And then after the days all pass, they'll go get it. And, uh, okay. <laughs> but like I said, you can do that. But if you haven't really got what the yeast means out of your house, you're not complying with Moses. And if you don't comply with the portion that Moses is giving you, the customs that Moses is giving you, you will not be immune to the plagues. We'll see that later. You shall eat nothing leavened, and all your habitations shall ye eat unleavened bread. Let's go on and do the next part in, in verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. Well, this is what he just said they, they were going to do. But now we're seeing this being said to the elders of Israel. We should look at that word elders, but we'll have to do it later. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lentils and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out at the door of this house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lentil and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. So something's going to cause the death of all these children, all the young, not just children. I mean, there, there's been stories where they, they say, well, Egyptians firstborn slept next to their father. Their father slept on uh, like a cot. And they slept on the floor next to their father because they were the firstborn. They were kind of like attached at the hip because they were going to take their place. Well, somebody said that it was carbon dioxide coming in or some sort of gas that was coming in from these volcanic eruptions and moved across. It was heavier than air, moved across, and it killed all those firstborn because they were laying on the floor. Now, this is somebody's theory. I'm not saying this is true, but they were saying this. And then, well, why didn't anybody in the houses of the Israelites die? Well, they were all sitting up in their chairs, dressed ready to go and eating a meal. So they didn't, it didn't affect them because it was only really those that were close to the floor. Well, I'm sure a couple of kids fell asleep on the floor. <laughs> I just, I can guarantee you that happened. So, and then that doesn't explain all the animals. That supposedly the firstborn were killed. So there's something going on here. I don't know. I don't think it's that important that we strain at gnats and swallow a camel. The camel is, is that we are not to covet our neighbor's goods. We aren't to be cruel to our neighbor. We aren't to hate our neighbor. And when we go and study that word leaven, we will find out that that word leaven, the same exact letters that form the word leaven, Chet Mem Tzedek, 
also means cruel and comes from words that mean cruel. And so, isn't that what Jesus said? If you have a beef with your brother and, you know, this raka with your brother, you got to go make peace with him before you do your sacrifice or your sacrifice means nothing. And that beef you have with him, that unforgiveness that you have with him, that uh, anger that you have with him, that that cruel part of your heart that you're going to need to circumcise out of your heart <laughs> has to go. Or all these rituals mean nothing. Because you're not going to be plugged into the utility of God that will hold the plagues of God at bay. You'll, oh, you'll have love. Oh, yeah, you'll say, I love them. But that's the feeling and the fancy, the emotion. Oh, you're just sure that this emotion is the love of God because it feels so good. But, you know, can you walk on water? <laughs> have you have you parted any seas? Have you tapped the rock? No, you have to... You have to get rid of all the cruelty, all the judgment, all the hate, all the... You have to have your heart circumcised. Yes, in the beginning, Moses is saying, well, just get the yeast out. And I'll explain to you what the yeast is later. What it means, what it represents. But if you just do the yeast thing, you're not going to... It's not going to work for you. Uh, It's going to end badly for you. So... The Lord will pass, and Moses called for all the elders. I said we should mention that, elders. In the New Testament, they're always talking about elders, and somehow or other, over the years of apostasy, the word elder has become an office of the church. The elder is the heads of families. That's what an elder is. It's a head of a family. If we if we go to the Hebrew text... I don't think I have any notes here right now on it. But, you know, if you go to, you know, that verse 21 and and look up that word elder there, it is almost always translated elder. And it's, uh, uh, I think it's Zedek uh, Kuf uh, Nun. Again, there's that Nun there. But it... It means an old man. It means the head of a household. And again, remember, if we go back, they were doing these lambs according to their fathers. If you look at that word fathers, you'll see that there is, I think there is an extra letter in there that it's, it's, it's talking about the father of fathers because a family was basically the eldest father of the family, all his married sons and his unmarried daughters. And it would also include their domestic servants. If they had certain people that had signed up with their family, they were a part of their family, and they were servants in their household, they were treated as family. Yeah, that that would also be included as part of the family. Because that's often what happened with orphans and people whose family died out. They had to connect themselves with another family. Because without family, you wouldn't survive. Family was essential, which is why... Government systems such as communism 
want to break down the family, want to destroy the family, want to undermine the family. And one of the best ways of undermining the family is to get the people not to honor their father and their mother, not take care of, not fatten their mother and father. Remember that word honor. It means to fatten, to increase, to take care of their father and mother. They'll say, oh, well, that's the government's job. I pay into Social Security, and so therefore that is my sacrifice when I pay into Social Security, and Social Security will take care of them. That's the Corbin of the Pharisees. If If you create a system where the government takes care of your parents, and you're forced to pay into that system by men who exercise authority one over the other, you're not following Christ. Go read our article on exercising authority one over the other. Christ said it wasn't to be that way with you. If it is that way with you, you're not following Christ. You may not even be a Christian. If you're willing to see it and repent and think, oh, wait a minute, I should have done something different. We were misled. I was misled. I was doing wrong. That takes a humble heart. But you know what that does? That gets the leaven out of your household. (laughs) Because the leaven in the bread of Egypt was all those benefits that were provided. You know, what was, how got, how did they get into bondage to begin with? They got the bread of Egypt. They needed the bread of Egypt because they had no bread. They had no bread because there was a famine. There was a famine and they weren't ready for it because the guy who could have told them that the famine was coming, they had thrown him into bondage. So he told the Pharaoh who was willing to listen. They weren't willing to listen to their brother. But he told the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh got ready for the famine and so they ate the bread of Egypt, and that's how they went into bondage. Now they're not to eat the leavened bread of Egyptians. Egyptians, flour was a big thing. They were A lot of Egyptians were vegetarians. They didn't even eat meat. They ate vegetables and flour. And they just loved those carbs. <laughs> and and that, that was part of their culture because they, that was the place they could grow lots of grain. And grain was one of those commodity monies and so that had to do with wealth. It's what was in their temples. It was what was in their banks. But they weren't to have the yeast. Wherever you have grain, you're going to have, and lots of grain, then you're going to have a grain flour mixed in with the, in the granaries, and you're going to end up with yeast. And there was going to be yeast in their bread. But he said, I don't want you to have any of that Egyptian yeast in your bread. I don't want you to have it, because that's all the yeast was from Egypt. I didn't want you to have that. You had to get that out of your household. And it started with that symbol. But if you stick worshiping the ritual and the and the symbols of the ritual, you'll miss the whole point. And that's what we're sharing with you. And we're going to get deeper and deeper in this as we go along. But we're going to run out of time. Let's see if we can get through uh, verse 24. Ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance. And again, there's that word ordinance. Chet kof. Uh, but how is it spelled in the actual text? That That's another whole thing that we will probably need to look at. I've got, it says, and ye shall observe, uh, which is the word shamar, but it appears in the text as usumartem, which is vav, shin, mem, resh, tav, mem. Again, you see that tav, mem 
in there, which is that movement of faith, that flowing of faith. And uh, the the meaning of the word statute and ordinance was from the same Chet Kuf. But in the text, we see Lamad Chet Kuf. The point is, is that this Lamad has to do with the hand and the operation of the hand. It comes from a word that actually means to carve. And so the the fact is, is this ordinance needs to be written upon your hearts and upon your minds. If you just do the outward ritual, it's not going to have the same effect. This eventually we'll see us in Jeremiah and the Hebrews, that God has to write upon your hearts and upon your mind. He has to carve his character in your heart and in your mind. And then you have to become a doer of the word, the tov mem. Tov mem, that mem has to do with the flow, tov has to do with the faith. But faith flowing is a, what happens when you become a doer of the word. If you're just a hearer only, you say, oh yeah, I believe. I don't want to do what Jesus says, but I believe. Then you don't have the tov mem. But now we see him introducing, Moses introducing the tov mem in the, in the text. So, verse 25, And it shall come to pass when ye be come to the land which the Lord will give you. So now he's giving you a prophecy of what's coming. You're going to have to have that top men by then. You're going to go through a lot. We'll go over that as we go through it. But you're going to need that top men or you won't have the courage to go in there. According as he hath promised that ye shall keep this service daily. According to the Tav Mem, the faith in action as doers of the word. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the house of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshipped. And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So did they. So this is this is a, probably a good place to go back and talk about the fact that this idea that is expressed by Moses in this ritualistic sacrifice of removing the leaven of having this shared single body gathering in each home and with your neighbors where you eat this meal together along with whatever bitter herbs you bring in with you and you don't use any leaven that it is a sacrifice that will bring you closer together and create those social bonds of a free society and it has to do one of the things when they talk about this leaven, and I have there outlined a lot of the words that are the unleavened, the, the matzah, uh, the shemetz, which is leaven, which also can mean cruel, and shamak, uh, which means violence and cruelty. You have to have all that out of your heart, out of your household. Remember that blood on the doorposts are, the do- are representing the doorposts of your own heart. And even the word... Uh, the letter Tav is supposedly representing a doorpost. The double Tav, which we will talk about 
later, and I've, I've been putting together a whole article on that, has to do with faith in spirit and in truth. If you don't get to the spirit and truth, all you're going to do is get a lot of lamb to eat some night and probably overeat at that. You need to be following this message of Moses in spirit and truth, and that means you have to remove the cruelty from your heart. They also have this other word that they talk about leaven uh, being the sheer uh, shin elef resh, and the same letter shin elef resh. We see it in numerous different words with different uh, Strong's numbers, but one of them actually means flesh and blood. And uh, along with another word, basar, which comes from that, it's be-it elef resh, instead of shin elef resh. Be-it has to do with the household. But all that, all these words are connected with the flesh pots, which uh, Jordan Peterson and his people were asking about. What are the, the flesh pots of Egypt, which we, we will see in Exodus 16, include the same two words, basar, seir, uh, which means flesh pots, or is translated flesh pots, but has a meaning of the cities of blood and the cauldrons of flesh that we're going to see in Ezekiel 11 and, and Micah. So I put links on the page so that you can go and do studying on your own in between these programs. We'll eventually put recordings up here that will help take you through this step by step. But we're going to have to finish this in um, the afternoon show. And then in the afternoon show, I'll take callers after the first hour. But it's very important that this theme be connected. The flesh pots of Egypt, the leaven. Uh, which we see connected because these same words are used over and over again. But Mo- Moses will slip in a tov here and there or a tov mem, which means faith in action. And he's, he's trying to tell you the same message that Christ was, that you don't want to build cities of blood. FDR built cities of blood. Obama is all four cities of blood. The communists are all four cities of blood. Where you be the flesh in the cauldron of your one-purse socialist systems, they they bring you back into that bondage of Egypt because you're literally coveting the blood and flesh of your neighbor. That's all part of that leaven that you have to get out of your house. Any bit of it will spoil the whole lump. And that's what pure religion is. But we'll have to finish this another time on Keys of the Kingdom. Until then, peace under your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.